The Partially Examined Life relies on your support. Please consider becoming a Partially Examined Life citizen, which gets you ad-free access to all of our episodes, hours of bonus content, and our Not School Learning community. Or support us on Patreon, where even a dollar's pledge yields great rewards. If you click through the Amazon banners at PartiallyExaminedLife.com every time you shop, you'll be supporting the podcast at no additional cost to you. To learn more, visit PartiallyExaminedLife.com slash support. Now please enjoy the show. You're listening to the Partially Examined Life, a philosophy podcast by some guys who were at one point set on doing philosophy for a living, but then thought better of it. Our question for episode 143 is something like, what is falsity? We read Plato's dialogue, The Sophist, probably written around 360 BC. You can join the discussion, get the text, and lots more information at partiallyexaminedlife.com. This is Mark Linton-Meyer, best classified as a hunter of keys, wallet, and phone in Madison, Wisconsin. This is Wes Allen, in but not of Boston, Massachusetts. This is Dylan Casey, angling for some non-being in Middleton. All right, so this is kind of a follow-up on our previous one on the Phaedrus, in that the Phaedrus, the whole second half was about what is the rhetorician, and we didn't really, you know, we got the main point of that, but uh, there was some appetite to talk about that topic some more, and so I raised the dialogue, maybe we should read the Ion, which is about poets, but then I actually read the Ion, and the Ion is really, really short, and it's just, poets don't have an art, they just practice by inspiration, and there's not a lot more to it than that, so I suggested maybe the Sophist, and then when we got into the Sophist, we decided just to do the Sophist, and not really try to be uh, global in our discussion of sophistry, although some words about how the sophist relates to the rhetorician and the poet might be in order. Well, what is your background with this dialogue or where were you coming from and what were you looking for out of this? It's read in uh, freshman year, so I've probably read it three or four times. And your translation is by Eva Brand, right? The one that I read this time is by Eva Brand, Peter Kalkavage, and Eric Salem. They're uh, all tutors at St. John's. I did not see such a fancy new translation. I just listened to and then read parts of the public domain, the Jowett. Yeah, I used to, at St. John's, because of the obsession with translation, you sort of look down on things like Jowett. And I don't even know why. But now it's like, yeah, it's fine. There's <laughs> nothing wrong with the Jowett. I yeah. care less about the precision. I don't think Jowett is known for not being precise. Maybe he's thought of as outdated or something. I'm not, I'm not sure. And I know with these newer translations, there's a focus on... Being less jargony, right, Dylan? And yeah. So this is a supposedly later dialogue. So this is the first one of those that we've covered, right? It was Theotetus later middle. I thought Theotetus was middle. Yeah, I guess I guess Theotetus is supposed to take place on the day after the Theotetus takes place. Theotetus is the guy who is being talked to here. Yes, he's he's the main. And this happens just dramatically before the apology. And I thought maybe this would be kind of a cleanup, like we could deal with his remaining thoughts on the people that he doesn't like, on the people that are purveying false philosophy. But apparently there's plenty more after this. So we could, we could, the Protagoras and the Statesman is one that is supposed to take place on the day after this. It has the same protagonist, which is strangely not Socrates. Socrates is there. He says some things to start things off, encouragingly, but... The guy asking the questions, the guy acting like Socrates is the stranger, the Eleatic stranger. Yep. Supposedly uh, from the same place as Parmenides. And presumably a student of Parmenides and a Parmenidean, 
let's say, even though he, yeah, he challenges exactly. his teacher's teachings <laughs> yeah. in this dialogue. You just mentioned the statesmen, and so they're explicit in the dialogue that the sophist is the first of three discussions they're supposed to have, the next one being the statesman, and the third one's supposed to be the philosopher. But Plato never, never wrote it, apparently. And there's some suggestion that maybe... He didn't write he it He didn't purpose. mean to write it, and that in the discussion of the sophist that the philosopher is sort of revealed as well. Yeah, it has being through non-being. Right. Because presumably they're engaged in the same sort of activity as the sophist, which is this dialectical or heuristic activity that we see a lot of in this dialogue. Which is not just a matter of dialectic as in, let's have a back and forth and refine a definition of something, which is very typical. You know, what is justice? Is justice whatever the strong says? No, it's this other thing that's a little better than that. A little bit like that's what I normally think of as dialectic, but this is a particular the method of division, of how, how we're going to come up with a definition of what is the sophist. Well, one way to look at the dialectic, you know, the typical method in other dialogues is to sort of unearth other people's presuppositions and the contradictions between those presuppositions. And, we, and there's a description of that in the sophist as one of the potential definitions of the sophist, which is more applicable, it turns out, to the philosopher. But this whole idea of unearthing other people's ignorance and purifying them of it, curing them of it, not by a sort of more positive approach, by indoctrinating them or pouring knowledge into them, but of sort of letting them see the error of their own ways. So that's the sort of typical thing we think of with the Socratic method, you know, that sort of leading them with questions into these contradictions. Well, bringing their knowledge out of them, right? Part of it might be the error of their ways, but it's in the Theotetus, right, that Socrates uses the image of, calls himself a midwife, right? Right. So you're saying this is one of the starting points of, they say, maybe the sophist is this and describes pretty much what Socrates is. Like, that's one of the points that's made, but it's kind of, it's not the starting point, certainly, and it doesn't use that method of division that I was... This method of division is quite, even though I think there's some of it implied in previous dialogues, so to identify this with dialectic, this is supposed to be dialectic now, but I think more typically what we think of as dialectic is that whole method of leading people to get rid of their opinions, their ignorant opinions as sort of stillborns by the internal contradictions between their opinions are within their own points of view. Do you see what I'm saying? So, yeah. so in this, we have this sort of more straight up division, you know, almost like a, what I think of as almost like a conceptual analysis where you say, oh, what is a sophist? And you start with this very general category like acquisition, and then you divide that between a hunter and an exchanger or something like that. And you just keep drilling down conceptually, cutting concepts up until you get to some sort of definition, which, of course, to do that, you really have to know where you're going in the first place. <laughs> yes. It's kind of a deceptive. So, yeah, it, it's quite different. So that I just wanted to point out that tension. I think there is something to the idea that at least the Aleatic Stranger must know something about where he's going with it. It's not clear to me that the method of division is simply one that you have to know everything. You have to know where the end point is before you start. I mean, dividing a problem into parts and going successively down one road of it and sort of discarding the rest. You don't have to know where you're going. That's one of the reasons why I think, you know, the method of division just on the face of it seems powerful in its own way. You have to know in the sense at the end of this maze, you're trying to get to the sophist. So if you or whatever you're trying to define. So if you go the wrong way, you may never get there. Right. And so you have to have. You have to know enough about what you're looking for in the sense of what it looks like to be able to say, here are two directions that I have before me. 
mm-hmm. which direction is the one that the soffit is most likely to be in. And there's a sense of it being a kind of hunt, and they use that word, you know, hunting the sophist, and they end up finding in, what, six or seven places. Yeah, so that's sort of reminiscent of Mino's paradox, where you sort of, the question is, how do you pursue knowledge of something if you don't already know it to some extent, if you don't really have something to hunt after? And the, you know, the idea is that, you well, you do have to have some sort of idea of what you're looking for, and then your inquiry will deepen that or maybe alter that, but you have to start with some sort of presupposition or uh, let's say prejudice if we're thinking about our recent episodes on critical theory. That's certainly true. I'm just, I think that it doesn't rise. I mean, in Mino's paradox, you do have the, in the strong sense of the paradox, it would be, how can you ever find an answer to a question that you don't already know the answer to? But I think in a weaker form, you can have something that's much more hypothetical. And yes, you have to have a kind of template or a sense of what to give direction to where you're going. But in that weak form, yes, there's that kind of prejudice to it, but it's it doesn't rise to saying, I already know what the answer is, right? I think to make this make sense, we need to read part of, so it starts in 218. I don't have the letters in my version here. Yeah, the first step is they sort of do a demo version of this, looking for the angler, right? Yeah, so the stranger says, what is there which is well-known and not great, and is yet as susceptible of definition as any larger thing. Shall I say an angler? That is a fisherman. He is familiar to all of us and not a very interesting or important person. Let us begin by asking whether he is a man having art or not having art, but some other kind of power. Somebody else want to read the Adidas? <laughs> okay, so we're at 218. And, and, and just to say that, that they've already said that they're going to go look for the sophist, but the stranger wants to use this method of division to do so, and so they're giving him an example. Yeah. All right. So... Wes, do you want to be a theodotetist? <laughs> Let us begin by asking whether he is a man having art or not having art, but some other power. He is clearly a man of art. And of arts, there are two kinds. What are they? There is agriculture and the tending of mortal creatures, and the art of constructing or molding vessels, and there is the art of imitation. All these may be appropriately called it by a single name. What do you mean? And what is the name? He brings into existence something which did not before is said to be a producer, and that which is brought into existence is said to be produced. True. And all the arts which we were just now mentioned are characterized by this power of producing? They are. Then let us sum them up under the name of productive or creative art. Very good. Next follows the whole class of learning and cognition. Then comes trade, fighting, hunting, and since none of these produces anything, but is only engaged in conquering by word or deed, or in preventing others from conquering, things which exist and have already been produced, in each and all of these branches there appears to be an art which may be called acquisitive. Yes, that is the proper name. Seeing then that all arts are either acquisitive or creative, in which class shall we place the art of the angler? Clearly in the acquisitive class. Okay, so we can't read a lot of this, but right off the bat, and he asks actually the same thing. Like It, it ends up that the sophist is going to be, just like the angler, somebody who's a hunter after fish, a hunter you know, using a particular kind of method, and the fish is a particular kind of animal, so that you can see kind of where the divisions come up. Is he a hunter, a land hunter, or is he a sea hunter? There's two things to think about, though. With each step, right, we're going to make a division. And where do we make that division? Because you could, you know, each time you drill down on a class, you could make all sorts of different kinds of divisions. (laughs) I mean, an infinite number, or for practical purposes, infinite. So how do you choose which kind of division you're going to make? And then the next step is, well, then you have to know enough about the thing you're pursuing, the angler, to put him in one division or another, which I think is the less controversial part of this. 
Well, and so he used this not just as an example of the method, but the sophist is going to fit very closely in the same tree of types of things that the angler is in that the sophist is a hunter after men's souls, really, or the souls of young people. You know, hunter after profits by, you know, getting them to buy his classes in the art of rhetoric or persuasion or whatever. So I guess that's the question. Is it, he obviously started, I think, with already the definition clearly in mind, which he could have just stated as a metaphor without going through all this rigmarole and saying, wow, that sophist is really just like a hunter after men's souls. And you might say, well, why is that? Well, and then it kind of explained that. But instead, he goes through this whole method of dividing up, which to me, just asking in the first place, well, is the sophist somebody who actually produces anything or is he something acquires something? I guess that's the question. Does that seem like something that you would already kind of have to know the answer and have a very clear idea about to come up with that question in the first place? Or is that just kind of a reasonable thing? Like, is the sophist actually creating anything original or is he just kind of regurgitating and spitting up and acquiring? And that seems a legitimate question to ask. Well, he could be both. I mean, I think the point is that he's all these things, right? Mm -hmm. It's not an exclusive. Yeah. And he doesn't just, I mean, they find him in six places and not all of them are in the same original mm-hmm. branching of that the angler's in, right? The, I mean, the first three branchings are between essentially getting, separating, and making. And they spend most of their time in that getting region that hunting is involved with, right? Right. Yeah, so the main three branches are acquisition, yep. production, and discrimination, right? Yeah, so I called them get, getting, making, and separating. Okay. So is it three of them that fall within the acquisition category and then one of them, two of them are exchange and one of them is, well. Well, yeah, I have, I have five of them in the acquisition category and one in the making or production category and one in the separating category. But maybe I will take your word for that. (laughs) I'm sure you were more uh, thorough than I was on this, but. Well, I want to give a, uh, before we get too far into it, a, a high level overview of where this is going, just in that the fact that they use this method and they find quite a few different definitions of what the sophist could be means that, well, okay, the fact that the sophist is bilking people out of money or trying to influence young people, that's not getting really getting at the essence of the sophist. The overall story, I think, here is supposed to be that if you come up with a bunch of different definitions, then none of those are really getting at the essence of it. You're just picking out qualities. And, and you know, that that's kind of normal that if you try to define anything, you might kind of focus on, you know, what is a chair? A chair is something we sit in. You could give a functional definition. You could give a material definition if the most of the chairs you're familiar with are made of certain kinds of things. And to really get boil it down, you'd have to, like, somehow put those in a hierarchy to say, okay, all right, I understand that chairs could be made of wood and be made of plastic and blah, blah, blah. But the thing that they all have in common is that they have to be made of something that will serve the function of sitting. So it really is the functional thing is what makes a chair over and above other qualities about it. Is that right? That this is the kind of definition we're shooting for is to get at the essence of something? Yeah, which is not to say that the first attempts at defining the sophist aren't true. They're obviously true. And and they, they're also revealing in some sense. But I think it's important that they're not essentials because they so resemble the philosopher in, in many ways. You'll notice that so some of these different definitions, for instance, the sophist turns out to be he's acquisitive by exchange. And so he sells basically what the stranger calls products of the soul by teaching virtue. And in many of these definitions, he sort of the element of money comes up, the element mm-hmm. of teaching virtue 
comes up and then uh, some sort of methodology like heuristic or verbal disputation, teaching, persuasion. And of course, you'll find these sorts of qualities elsewhere, especially I think, you know, when you think about the method, the method of the sophist may turn out to be identical in a sense to that of the philosopher, but it has to be other factors, more essential factors, as Mark was pointing out, that would have to distinguish the sophist. So it's not that the sophist, so someone might come to this thinking, oh yeah, the sophists are just these guys who go around making people contradict themselves, and they're talking about virtue all the time, and so on and so forth. And you couldn't distinguish the sophist from, for instance, Socrates that way. So we need a better definition if we want to make that distinction. And can we say how exactly the sophist relates to the rhetorician? Or is that a complicated question? (laughs) I kind of was coming into this thinking that we were still (laughs) going to be talking about rhetoric. So the sophists, I guess, were as I was reading, for the most part, you know, it was, a, it was a particular social phenomenon of the time, that they were foreigners, that they would come in and get young people to pay them to teach them virtue, as you were just saying. And part of what that amounted to is teaching them how to argue about things, so teaching them rhetoric. So the same discussion that we had about rhetoric, both in the Phaedrus and in the Gorgias, our earlier episode in this area, are still going to apply here, that it's not teaching you well, according to Plato, the whole problem with it is not actually teaching you truth and wisdom. It's teaching you how to argue for any particular position. It's, it's teaching you how to be eloquent. And really, if that's not based on a knowledge of truth, according to Socrates right. here, or according to Plato, then really it's teaching lies. It's teaching, yeah. you know, not only filling the students' heads with falsehoods, but giving them the ability to fill other people's heads with falsehoods, which is essentially, according to Plato, yeah, what the rhetorician and the poet do. Yeah, yeah. So that description should be familiar to anybody having heard us talk about the argument against poetry, right? Yeah. So this sort of comes out in the Phaedrus episode, the critique of rhetoric or the art of persuasion, you know, or at least that in the pejorative sense, right? Because presumably there could be a good sense of rhetoric if it involves actually knowing something and then persuading people of what you know. And I think the point here is that the difference between the philosopher and the sophist is not methodological, but it involves a certain state of mind. It involves the question is really whether the person engaged in heuristic and dialectic actually knows something. And I, so I think, you know, the, this sort of comes out first in the definition of the sophist that involves production as opposed to acquisition. That's where we get our first talk about ignorance versus knowledge or opinion versus knowledge. So which line are you on? I have a round in the 230s, 232 something is about, is the description of... The debater? Yeah, the debater knows how to dispute about all things. Like, that's the, the idea. But of course, they don't know about all things. So what are they doing? And so this is kind of the last of those attempted definitions by breaking down is, is that they're an, an imitator. That if they're, if they're not actually telling you, they couldn't know everything and moreover be willing to, for a very low price, teach it to you. That That's not realistic. Nobody is that wise. Nobody is a god, well, a commercial-based god in that way. So what they're selling must be not the real deal. It must be an imitation. And that gets us on, really sets the path for the rest of the dialogue of like, whoa, what is an imitative art of reasoning? Yeah, so it's around... Before we jump into that, and we should also talk about the purification definition as well, since that's... Sure. So are we still... Sorry, I'm looking for the That's 228 is the purification. 233. No, I was just going to give the... Sure. So 233, but how can anyone who is ignorant dispute in a rational manner against him who knows? He cannot. 
then why has the sophistical art such a mysterious power? To what do you refer? How do sophists make young men believe in their supreme and universal wisdom? For if they neither disputed nor were thought to dispute rightly or being thought to do so were deemed no wiser for their controversial skill than to quote your own observation, no one would give them money or be willing to learn their art. Skipping ahead, yes, and the reason I should imagine is that they are supposed to have knowledge of those things about which they dispute, and then it'll turn out that they don't actually have knowledge. So I want to relate this before we get too far to yeah. something that this is not just a weird little thing about a culture war that was going on in Greece at the time, but what are we doing here? Do we think, for instance, that we have the truth as we go through these things? We're not so pretentious as that. We just are kind of seeing what we can make out of these things we're reading, see what makes sense, what doesn't make sense, trying to instill a general skill of being able to read these things and not being intimidated by these things. That clearly takes is part of the sophistical project, whether it's an emphasis on ours like reading or whether it's an emphasis like debate. These are all things that we think are legitimate in this culture. And certainly being a lawyer, like it's not even the point whether to learn the truth of whether your client is guilty or not. No, you argue their side as best you can. You use all the tools and law schools will teach you to do that. And then going further from that, why the statesman in the, the following dialogue is going to be an example of this. Well, of course, in politics, <laughs> it's the same damn thing. Is it really all the right wing pundits that it sees they are being tested right now? Can they see the truth? Can they state the truth that Trump is a bad candidate? That's pretty obvious. Or do they have to just they're committed to arguing for their side? So I think this is a live debate. I mean, one of the things I was thinking about is the cultural implications, because ultimately we're going to be talking about someone in other dialogues is called conceit of wisdom or thinking, you know, things you don't really know. That is sort of the essence of sophism, or at least, I mean, one of the definitions here, the sophist sort of does know that they don't know, and they cynically teach it as if it's knowledge anyway. But later on, we will get to the idea of sophism as thinking you know things you don't really know. And if you look at the political landscape, I think you could look at opinions of all political stripes, right? Just look at the quality of public discourse. It's poor, and it always involves this sort of element of certainty and a sort of lack of actual inquiry. There's sort of the art of persuasion. You know, if you look at the average opinion piece or something, there's sort of nominally, there's an art of persuasion there. But it wouldn't be really be persuasive to anyone who already doesn't think the same thing. So in a way discourse even lacks that. It's even imitating persuasiveness. It's it's not even... <laughs> so I think, yeah, when you think about sophism at a cultural level, you should see it as something that actually predominates, that is actually the typical state of any discourse or of the way people think about things. Well, I think you should be a little careful about the state of discourse. I mean, there might be an argument that things have ebbed and flowed over time and that there were times where there was better discourse than others. But when I read this, it makes me think, well, it's not all that different than it was 2,500 years ago. I'm not saying that it hasn't always been that way. Yeah, have things gotten worse? I don't, I'm agnostic on whether it's worse yeah, now. Yeah. Than, but at the very at least, there's something utterly recognizable about the kinds of inequalities and accusations that are going on here. Now, part of that might be that calling a sophist a sophist as a pejorative is probably invented by Plato. <laughs> so, right. right. And it might be in part that long shadow that influences that, at least for that particular word. Nonetheless, those categories of somebody who's a debater simply to win the argument, but not for the sake of the truth is a well-worn and understood kind of character. And even amongst lawyers, right? And to the extent that you would make that 
compromise, I guess it depends on the kind of lawyer you are, but it's certainly an uneasy compromise even there, right? I also think, though, of the current climate is rife for sophistry in the sense of technology and the advances of the sciences make it easier sort of to cast a spell, right? So someone like Sam Harris, who I think of as a sort of quintessential sophist, sorry, everyone, he has the credibility of being a neuroscientist. So he's going to think about things like free will and morality. And in a way, he brings to that a sort of method, not the scientific method, but a sort of clear thinkingness associated with that. And, you know, the sophist does bring the philosopher's method with him. That's the one thing he has. But on the other hand, he doesn't know shit about philosophy. That's that's a real problem. <laughs> Another way of saying that is one of the things that a sophist is peddling is certainty. And one of the challenges with a attitude of knowing what you don't know or of inquiry is just that unsettled character of living with uncertainty. And I think that's one of the persuasive features of sophistry. And you see that in sort of the worst form in kind of demagoguery and authoritarianism, where the main persuasive fact of it is its self-professed certainty and the kind of constant aligning of facts or attempts to align facts that just weigh in on that certainty, as opposed to trying to have an inquiry to see, well, what's really going on? Yeah. And being comfortable. I think that's really well put this, you know, being comfortable with uncertainty, which I think culturally and politically, that's seldom the case, right? That's seldom the kind of spirit that dominates, I think, public discourse. Since we're talking about this at a cultural level, I think another manifestation that I thought of is just the sort of professionalism or focus on technique. Because again, I'm thinking of the sense in which the technique is the shared thing in the case of the sophist and philosopher, aristic or dialectic. Mm -hmm. And I think we've talked about this in other podcasts. So for instance, Heidegger and other critical theorists, it's sort of when the method or a methodology or a technique sort of becomes the object itself instead of truth or some goal like that. So you can be a good lawyer, you could be the utmost professional, even as a philosopher today, right? Even as an academic philosopher, you could be the quintessential professor, but be really divorced from the activity of truth-seeking at some fundamental level. Well, I think there's an ambiguity in what Plato's position is, as opposed to this sophistical taking false certainty, so do you go with the old-timey Socrates skeptical interpretation that really the proper intellectual method as opposed to this false certainty is no certainty at all? Or is it really, this is really the way I read Plato for the most part, especially looking at the symposium, is that the truly wise person, the philosopher in Plato's sense, is really in touch with the divine, with the truth, with the forms, is not just going to wallow in uncertainty. Because if nobody had access to certainty, if it was really just a matter of false certainty versus recognized appropriate uncertainty, then that invites a certain kind of relativism. Whereas if you think that, no, no, there really is a truth that we can get at, and that's what the philosopher needs to be doing. And it's just that the sophists are too stupid, they're too unskilled, they're not in touch with whatever the divine nature of things is, so they can't get at that. I think we have to though, we have to distinguish relativism and skepticism. The idea isn't that there isn't a truth. There is a truth, which is that's the anti-relativistic position. It's just that we are ever distant from the truth. That's the skeptical position. 
you can see as a practical matter, one bleeds into the other, though, right? If nobody can know the truth, then like your best guess is as good as mine. No, that's, that's not true. There are better and worse approaches to the truth. Yeah. And you're replaying the end of the dialogue, right? That not being is the same as anti-being, right? So, yeah. Very good. So Stuart Humphrey, a friend of Dylan's and a tutor at St. John's, he wrote a book called Zetetic Skepticism. And of course, he's not the first person to think of Socrates as a skeptic. But the word zetetic just means seeking. So you're always engaged in truth seeking and you do make progress because the whole idea is that you can discard bad opinions. That's the whole dialectical method. You're pruning the tree. And when Socrates says he knows only that he knows nothing, that seems only negative, but there's actually an enormous positive side to that. That is actually a really, really significant kind of knowledge. So I see, I read Plato as a skeptic and a sort of advocate of the idea of embracing uncertainty. And I see the forms and all that as more attempts at sort of giving a mythology of what an answer might look like. But I understand the other sort of reading. But this is actually a good segue into the purification definition of the sophist, which is really a definition of the philosopher, because it is the sort of uncertainty way of looking at things. So this is around 230 there's the time-honored mode which our fathers commonly practice towards their sons, and which is still adopted by many, either of roughly reproving their errors or of gently advising them, which varieties may be correctly included under the general term of admonition. True, says Theotetus. But whereas some appear to have arrived at the conclusion that all ignorance is involuntary, and that no one who thinks himself wise is willing to learn any of those things in which he is conscious of his own cleverness, and that the admonitory sort of instruction gives much trouble and does little good. There they are quite right. So the admonitory, I think of as in, you're going to tell people what's true and what's good. You're just going to tell them. And that's the way you cure them of your ignorance. The other way is going to turn out to be the Socratic way. Accordingly, they set to work to eradicate the spirit of conceit in another way. In what way? They cross-examine a man's words when he thinks that he is saying something and he is really saying nothing, and easily convict him of inconsistencies in his opinions these they then collect by the dialectical process, and placing them side by side, show that they contradict one another about the same things, in relation to the same things, and in the same respect. So here we see the, what I was thinking of as the other definition of dialectic, which is this contradiction. He, seeing this, is angry with himself, and grows gentle towards others, and thus is entirely delivered from great prejudices and harsh notions, in a way which is most amusing to the hearer and produces the most lasting good effect on the person who is the subject of the operation. For as the physician considers that the body will receive no benefit from taking food until the internal obstacles have been removed, so the purifier of the soul is conscious that his patient will receive no benefit from the application of knowledge until he is refuted and from refutation learns modesty. He must be purged of his prejudices first and made to think that he knows only what he knows and no more. So that, I think, is in line with the idea of the true philosopher as more of an agnostic or skeptic. But yet this is a, an attempt to still define what a sophist is, right? Yeah, but then he, he basically says at the end of this, well, this doesn't really sound like a sophist. <laughs> because he says it's, like, it's more like a wolf than a dog. The sophist is the philosopher as the wolf is to the dog. Yes. Then he basically says, but, you know, for now, let this be called by you and me the nobly descended art of sophistry. How's that for irony? My translation is a little bit different, but it's saying the same thing. 230E, after going through and finding him, the stranger sums up, For all these reasons, Theotetist, we must say that refutation is the greatest and lordliest of cleansings, and we must believe that the man who is unrefuted, 
even if he happens to be the great king, since he's uncleansed in the greatest matters, has turned out uneducated and deformed in those things in which it was fitting to be most clean and beautiful for the man who was to be genuinely happy. So I, I take that to mean that it turns out to be a sophist and therefore as a sophist is to a philosopher, so a wolf is to a dog, because this sophist is a man unrefuted. Even though he's gone through all these exercises of going through refutations and employing that dialectical art that Wes was referring to, in some sense, he doesn't know what he doesn't know. He treats his opinions as if they were knowledge. The Greek word, which I called conceit of wisdom, is doxa sophia. So yeah. the seeming wisdom, and that is the great crime for Socrates. This reminds me a little bit of the kind of thing going on in Gorgias, right? Where you have somebody that's acknowledged to be good at his art. And in some ways, the real downfall is exactly believing that you actually really know, being certain about it. And this gets to the whole question of properly held skepticism, which is not the same thing as knowing nothing, but not the same thing as claiming knowledge. Yep. So there are no parts in here that give the impression of the other opposition that there really is divine truth. And the problem is that you're certain of the wrong thing. It's not certainty itself. It's that you're certain of these stupid things. I mean, certainly in the, in the description later of the difference between the materialists, the giants, as he calls them, and the idealists, the gods that think that truth lies in an ideal world of, of forms. Which is Plato critiquing himself. Yeah, yes, that being is uh, a body. How's that for lack of certainty? But he, between the two of them, certainly comes down against the materialist. He's harsher about them. thought he came down against both of them. Yeah, it, and it's certainly true, Mark, that there's a strong sense of being in touch with the divine. Like you said, you see that in the Supposing, you see that in the Apology, Socrates' Damon, and there's over and over mystical character to the activity of the philosopher. But I don't think that that translates into certainty in any conventional way about the nature of the divine. I think it's in the Apology, one of the few cases in which Socrates says that he knows something is that he knows he should listen to his daemon. That doesn't mean that the daemon's right exactly, because the daemon's only pointing him in a direction. It's not providing him knowledge. So just like the Nazis and many others abuse Nietzsche, you know, Ubermensch, Ubermensch, we're the Ubermensch. I only watched the first episode. There's a, a Netflix series, The Path, which is about a cult. And in the in that first episode, there was a sermon, and they used Plato's allegory of the cave, you know, with a slide projector and everything, to show that I've left the cave, and now I'm embracing whatever it is the cult believes, it's using it as a straight religious allegory. It's just like people who are have some kind of crazy doctrine about literal interpretations of the Bible point to scientific justification for that. There's an inherent problem with, so for instance, today there, I think there are these clubs like rationalist clubs. Is that what they call them themselves? They're rationalists or they're the highly reasonable people, right? And often it's associated with atheism and things like that and the embrace of science. Of course, some of the their ideas are actually really silly and could be put in the category of scientism and 
so the thing here is that even if you idolize reason, if you idolize reasonableness, that easily itself becomes irrational. One can only exhibit it. One can only try to live it. If it itself becomes sort of a religious object, then you're in trouble again. I think that sort of collapse is always pending. It's always a danger with this sort of thing. And we've talked about that in the realm of ethics, which is certainly relevant to this dialogue. You know, you just brought up Sam Harris, that even though his ethics is supposed to be empirical, you're looking at you know, what actually makes people suffer. Still, the approach is, come on, everybody just be reasonable about this. And somehow that reason paired with common experience is supposed to just deliver ethics to you. And of course, the Randians, the Ayn Randians claim reason as the source of their ethics as well. I was having a, having a dialogue with somebody who actually took Kant in that same way that, hey, Kant says reason tells us what ethics is. That's the only possible basis there could be for ethics is reason, which I wasn't sure of the, the context, but in all these, it's almost like Euclid, like that you see <laughs> why a geometric proof works because you apply reason. You know, where, whatever your uncontroversial, supposedly uncontroversial postulates are, you can just derive an ethics from that. So I think that's the kind of thing that would be sophistry. <laughs> Yeah, there are lots of paragons of reason who somehow manage to disagree with each other. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. I think we were going to touch on the sort of segue that sort of get to the production of appearances definition. I don't know if we want to read any quotes, but I mean, in summary, the sophist turns out to be, so he's not just acquisitive, he's a producer and he produces appearances that are based not on knowledge, but on opinion. Since you brought it up, I just want to clarify that the discriminative is the purification thing that you just talked about. You know, just like you could discriminate the chaff from the wheat. In that sense, a sophist, when acting as a good Socratic philosopher anyway, teacher is discriminating sort of the bad parts of the soul from the good parts of the soul, or at least trying to do that. Right. Purification is one type of separation or discrimination. Yeah. Discrimination. Get rid of that. <laughs> so making. So he's, he's creative. That's a good thing. He's a poet. He's the maker of the sea and the earth and the heavens and the gods and all of the other things. And further, that he can make them in no time and sell them for a few pence. Yep. Yeah. says, that must be a jest. And is there any more artistic or graceful form of jest than imitation? So there it goes. It is a jest that he's an imitator, just like the poets, just like all the artists that just make everything. He says the painter and by the painter's arts makes resemblance of real things which have the same name with them. And he can deceive the less intelligent sort of young children to whom he shows his pictures at a distance into the belief that he has the absolute power of making whatever he likes. So similarly, the sophist is doing the same thing. He's creating uh, semblances of truth. Right. So earlier on, the way he puts it, may there not be supposed to be an imitative art of reasoning? Is it not possible to enchant the hearts of young men by words poured through their ears when they are still at a distance from truth of facts? By exhibiting, maybe you just read this, by exhibiting fictitious arguments. Yeah, it's right after what I read, so that's good. And making them think that they are true and that the speaker is the wisest of men in all things. And now I should like you to tell me whether the sophist is not visibly a magician and imitator of true being. He's not only a, like a stage performer, he's a magician. The word in my translation that they use is enchanter, which I like a little bit better than magician because of 
the notion of putting somebody under a spell, which seems to be one of the characteristics of a sophist in the way they're talking about it. That being an imitator and generating likenesses, you're an entertainer in some respect. I guess yeah. a magician's an entertainer as well. But. Oh, well, I see why St. John's person, the literal enchanting would choose that, whereas magician, a commercial magician who plays children's birthday parties generally don't go by enchanters, that that implies real magic, although they should. That would be a good marketing thing. <laughs> so I was going to suggest we read the summary of this, where they collect all the, they collect the definition, but that, I forgot that that doesn't, of course, occur until the end of the dialogue, because they take a segue <laughs> into not being, but... Oh, just a little diversion. Um, just a few pages. Yeah, a little, <laughs> little sidetrack. Yeah, before they get into that, there's this interesting, the idea is that the sophist is a sort of imitator, but the imitation is sort of broken up into likenesses and then appearances or resemblances. Or, and this translation I have is appearances. So for instance, the example he uses is a sculpture which is imitates a human being and is in exactly the right proportions to do that. And then a sculpture which distorts proportions so that it will look more beautiful when you're looking at it from an angle, let's say. That always made me think that with painting, the idea of perspective, but I'm sure they did not at this point in the history of art. Right. Like, it's hard to make sense of that distinction at this point in the dialogue. But the distinction is one of, is the thing most like what it is an image of? Or is it, if you were to look at it, like in the case of the perspective issue, if you were to look at it, you'd say, no, it's not actually like the thing it is. It's just, it is literally creating an image that is like the thing you want to look at. So in that case, you'd be maintaining proportion in a way as if it were in front of you in a actual way. Okay, let me just read it. This is 236. In works either of sculpture or painting, which are of any magnitude, there is a certain degree of deception. For if artists were to give the true proportions of their fair works... The upper part, which is farther off, would appear to be out of proportion in comparison with the lower, which is nearer. And so they give up the truth in their images and make only the proportions which appear to be beautiful, disregarding the real ones. So, and that which is being, that which being other is also like, may not we fairly call likeness or image. We'll call those resemblance of the beautiful which appear such owing to the unfavorable position of the spectator. Whereas if a person had the power of getting a correct view of works of such magnitude, they would appear not even like that to which they profess to be like. May we not call these appearances, since they appear only and are not really like. I don't know if we want to wait to say why that distinction is important, or if we know. I'm not sure that I know <laughs> exactly. Are we still nailing the, the distinction? I mean, at 236A, they're giving the case of the craftsman who says... Bidding farewell to the truth produces within their images not the genuine proportions, but only those which would seem beautiful. And I thought genuine proportions make sense so that if you were making a likeness that was true to the original, it would maintain all those proportions. It would be congruent in some respect, just to use a geometrical analogy. Whereas you might distort it in order to make it appear more beautiful because those congruencies might not be beautiful and therefore you would distort it into an image that was more like what it it should be or should be more beautiful without recognizing or genuinely replicating it it's like airbrushing right 
I mean, that would be a, a kind of trivial example, but. Yeah, now I'm trying to get at the underlying, the, the more fundamental concern that this distinction. Just to draw a parallel. So in 228, just a few sections before this, he gives a kind of important, I don't know, maybe recap within the platonic canon of what ignorance is. Right. So he talks about vice as a disease of the soul. And what that is, is a dissolution of kindred elements. So just like you know, a disease of the body is your immune system is, is attacking you or what, whatever the thing is, there's a cancer cell in there, there's some sort of dissolution, then that's what vice is like in the soul, whereas deformity is a, a want of measure. It's things being out of proportion. Mm-hmm. And that's what he thinks that ignorance actually is. Ignorance is not the same as vice. He gives the analogy of your mind is naturally bent on truth. So when something is out of proportion, it's missing its aim. The mind is naturally bent on truth. When the understanding is perverted by ignorance, then you miss. So it's kind of like if you've got the bow and arrow and one of your arms is huge and so you can't aim straight anymore or one of your eyes is crooked or whatever. Yeah, and I think the idea here is that the same way that the sophist looks a lot like the philosopher, ignorance and false opinion are not just these obviously untrue things. They look true. They have the air of being something that we know for certain. So if you're ignorant, you're using the false opinion like a bad guide scope on your gun or whatever. You've got a bad tool pushing things out of proportion. And the out of proportion, though, has this function, right, of verisimilitude which is the dangerous part. So the appeal of certain opinions, it's not that just by chance we happen to have these bad opinions, that we happen to be ignorant. They are actually fundamentally attractive because there's a verisimilitude to them. It's distorted to be made more beautiful, more attractive, and it no longer is properly representative. So I think this whole distinction between a mere imitation and what he's calling an appearance, which is distorted, is a distinction between something which represents and so can be a tool of knowledge And that's something which no longer represents and is purely constructed. It's hard not to think of Kant there and the construction of appearances, which are completely divorced from things in themselves. Well, but I was trying to think of a concrete example, like in the ethical realm, that you might think that really appeals to authority are appropriate. Because if there's somebody that you respect, then, of course, you want to praise them and you want to say that they're right. And so that would be the kind of thing that a sophist might teach is always obey your elders or the old people, they've been around more, they know more than you. And so for sure, you should just go with whatever they say. And that might seem like the pious thing to do. But Socrates is not going right. to ultimately advocate that, even though he would admit that, yes, of course, you want to respect people and whatever. But really respecting them means actually disabusing them, is refuting them. Yeah, but also something like, take an example from Nietzsche, like love thy neighbor. Well, obviously that seems like something we should do. But what if Nietzsche's argument is right that there's a lot of hate concealed in that proposition? If it's just a cloak, if it's just sort of a airbrushed, made over reflection of hatred and darker impulses, and we can't ever therapeutically, right, in the purification sense, become aware of those darker impulses because we delude ourselves with that kind of moralism. And politically, you could say that about all sorts of atrocities. A lot of atrocities historically depend on obviously good things, right? Your whole movement, so for instance, communism and the ideal is noble. The idea that people should be equal in this distributive 
sense. They should have the same resources. I don't know how to put it. That's probably a really bad way to put it. But there's a noble ideal there, but it can be something that serves as the foundation for great evil. You are getting exactly into the area that we just discussed with Simone de Beauvoir, but yet she does not speak of these choices as knowledge of truth exactly. She certainly doesn't put it in thinking that you should sacrifice everything to the cause. That's not a matter of being... Is it a matter of being out of proportion, being shielded from the truth somehow? I know it's not fulfilling your freedom. It's not fulfilling your telos as a free being. Well, it's the serious, you know, remember the serious is to treat these values as absolutes, which is a version of this. Instead of being properly agnostic and seeing that sort of coming from ourselves. and uh, Appropriately skeptical, right? Agnostic would imply that you were refusing to make a choice. And as you were saying earlier, part of the skepticism would be, yes, you're making a choice. There is, in fact, a lot of choice making being made, but there's always a little bit of reflection, maybe even irony to that. They're not absolute in the sense I would never sacrifice my own freedom or the freedom of others to them. I wouldn't demolish whole populations in the name of this truth and things like that. The freedom is really the only fundamental value and the corresponding value for Socrates is ignorance, right? The knowledge of one's own ignorance sort of is the correlate value of existentialist freedom. Nice connection. And so this gets us to the big digression, which is, hey, the sophist is going to say, oh, but haven't you read Parmenides? Parmenides says there's no such thing. Everything's being. How could there be falsity? Because everything is one, everything is being, and so there's no such thing as not being. And so falsity, what could that possibly be? Falsity implies not being, but you can't even talk about not being. So how can you say that I lie? That doesn't make any sense. You're just talking nonsense. Somebody want to give a better version of the Parmenidean view well, let's give an example of a falsehood and why that's a problem. Theotetus is flying, which is false. What's objectionable about that under this theory? The stranger puts it, but he who asserts says that falsehood exists, this is 237, has the audacity to assert the being of not being, for this is implied in the possibility of falsehood. So one very conventional way to think about this, which is not the way it's talked about in the dialogue, is that if I imagine Theotetus flying, I have the idea in my mind but it's not there in reality. Truth is an affirmation of being. Is that analytically true? If you say something is true, then you're attributing being to a state of affairs. If you say, there is a duck here, and there is in fact a duck here. It's false that Theotetus is flying, and that I take that Theotetus is flying as some sort of entity that has being. Is that the Part of the problem with this is that in the end, we do talk about the being of non-being, right? And so... In the end, it's not going to be a problem. In fact, it's going to be a solution. In fact, the way you just described it, Wes, it sounds like Russell's... uh... No, it is. This is definitely related (laughs) to definite descriptions. And that was more a question of meaning. Like, if you say the present king of France is bald, and there is no present king of France, then that statement is just meaningless? Or is it false? And... That was a huge puzzle until Russell analyzed that you know, as an existential statement. There exists an X such that X is the king of France and X is bald. And therefore, you can say the statement is false and not meaningless and avoid all those problems. I think the paradox here is that you say there is a falsehood. When you say something is false, you're saying that something that is not is. It is false. I don't know if that's right or a good way to put it. but Yeah, you're hitting the nub on the contradiction from Parmenides 
if you claim something is false, that it's true, then you've run into a contradiction and therefore it's a paradox. And it reminds me a lot of the kind of paradox you have in ancient Greece of like Zeno's paradox, right? If I'm going to go, if I'm going to go from here to there, from where I'm sitting to the wall on the other side of the room, I have to go halfway there and I have to go halfway again. I have to go halfway again. But if I keep breaking it in half, I'll never get there. Yet somehow I do get there. So in the way that's the paradox, right? And when I think about that particular paradox, I think, well, what you've just revealed is that you're just not thinking about it correctly. Maybe your solution is going to, you're going to have to invent calculus in order to come up with a way to talk about it. But you are finding out that dividing distances in half is you ultimately find out dividing it in terms of ratios of integers doesn't cover the whole distance. It doesn't work. But you know by empirical fact that you can cover that whole distance and so there's something not quite right about your way of numbering distance i mean that's ultimately in the case of zeno's paradox that's the way i think of it and so in here i think you somehow get a little bit of you're not thinking about this correctly even here in this dialogue where you end up asserting the being of non-being in a very particular context by revealing the other. I'm getting ahead of ourselves. but I just want to reiterate this example before we get into those abstractions, yes. which is that, so to say that it's not the case that Theotetus is flying means to assert the non-being of Theotetus flying, which is to assert the being of non-being. That's the paradox. And I just want to orient us for people that don't remember who Parmenides is, don't feel like we're just name-dropping and excluding you, that Parmenides, along with Heraclitus, are kind of the biggest of the pre-Socratic philosophers and remember this Eliatic stranger he's Eliatic because he's from Aaliyah Aaliyah that Parmenides is from and he's supposedly a student of Parmenides as was Zeno who did Zeno's paradox so we still owe the people a Parmenides slash Parmenideans episode that I promised them after Heraclitus and promised them after Hegel talking about being and it will come eventually but we're giving hints of it we're getting an advanced peak Anyway, Parmenides is famous for saying all is one, and he's sort of a uh, partisan of being, let's say. Was he a new agey guy? All is one. Was he a Hindu? Yeah. <laughs> sounds very uh, Plotinus. Very in line with kind of a uh, mystical... Plotinus known as the Neoplatonist. So yeah. as a Plato is usually taken, we were saying earlier that Certainly with the way that Plotinus and Augustine reads Plato as, you know, the guy who says, really, it's the forms. And it's only a slight jump to that to say, really, it's the form of the good. That's the only really real thing. And everything else is just the skin of the onion is just illusions. And so far in this dialogue, we've not seen that. All right. This is in 263, 264. Let's say more about what the problem is. You're asserting the uh, being of non-being, and that sounds like a contradiction. So it takes him a long time to solve this contradiction, but Plato is actually going to do that, that he's going to have the stranger commit parricide, patricide, metaphorically kill his parent Parmenides by arguing against this Parmenidean doctrine that everything is ultimately one, that there's only really being, that non-being is not only just an illusion, the way Augustine would put it, but it's something that you can't even sensibly talk about because you'd be doing exactly what you were describing, Wes. You were saying that being, if you say it is not there, it is absent, you're using an it, but an it implies a being. So saying anything at all 
about non-being is making an entity out of something that is not an entity. I'm using this word non-being. Doesn't that have a referent? Isn't it like me saying that here's an object and it has the property, there being no such thing, right? (laughs) But the way language works, it looks like if I'm using a word, I have to be referring to something. And so if I'm referring to it in order to negate it, negating it while at the same time asserting its existence by referring to it. You're asserting the existence of the negated thing. Yeah, just by mentioning it. So that's where the present king of France paradox sort of fits into. When I use a noun that has no, or a phrase, descriptive phrase that has no referent, how does that work? Before 257, which Mark pulled us to, there's this short side discussion about rest and motion which end up being categories like being and non-being that are fundamental, almost like, I don't want to call them forms, but... Ontological categories. Yeah, ontological categories. And one of the confusions becomes that being seems to be both. (laughs) So in other words, we can say everything that is is in rest or in motion, but we can't say that to be, that these things exhaust being, right? They can't, um, because... If they did, then there'd be no third thing that was neither of them to predicate of them, right? So we'd have to say motion is at rest or rest is at motion or something like that. We need this third overarching entity being for them. So you can't really define being by the things that it's cut up into. It may be true that everything is at rest or in motion, but that doesn't exhaust being somehow. So I guess for Parmenides, following Zeno's paradox thing that Dylan described, then motion is illusory, right? Motion seems like it's not simply being, that it's becoming, that it's change. But because motion is impossible, essentially the way that you described it, then that must just be an accident of the way we perceive things. We talk about this explicitly about Augustine, that if we could really take the God's eye view, then there would be no motion. It would just be being. So in that sense motion doesn't really exist. (laughs) And just to be clear, that's not the stance here, right? I'm trying to figure out what is Parmenides' view that he's arguing against. Uh, Whereas I thought then Heraclitus' view is, at least one way of putting it, is that for something to exist at all, it has to be in motion, or at least in tension, in opposition with something else. Like, that's what makes something stand out as an existent. Now, you could talk about the whole system where all the different tensions cancel out, and so there's something not entirely opposite about Heraclitus and Parmenides' view that you could say, okay, yeah, Heraclitus is just emphasizing the flux and the tension of the individual elements, but still could maybe have a Parmenidean view of the whole. But it still sounds like, well, what is being? For Parmenides, only ideas have being. For Heraclitus, at least the way he's often interpreted is that only motion has being. Yeah, and the the part of Heraclitus, you'll remember, that seems most like it's at rest would be the logos itself, the ratio, the relation, the thing that stays the same. And so that's where you manage to escape complete and utter chaos is you have things in proportion to one another. And those proportions don't change. And so in some sense, those proportions are at rest. And that's the way you might go in that Parmenidean way. So it doesn't seem like Plato shows any real understanding or cognizance of how interesting those kind of views are here. 
that the stranger talking to Theotetus is just saying stuff like, isn't it obvious that you can call two things, you know, there's hot and cold, say, well, that's two things. <laughs> what possible reason could you have for saying there's ultimately no difference between them? Like, he just doesn't get it. 242, a moist and a dry, a hot and cold. The Eleatics in our part of the world, that is, you know, Parmenides, say that all things are many in name, but in nature one. This is their mythos, which goes back to Xenophanes and is even older. And he gives a lot of different variations off this. He's sort of giving a kind of history of philosophy, right? Yeah. So a few lines down, when these philosophers talk of one, two, or more elements, which are or have become or are becoming, or again, of heat mingling with cold, assuming in some other part of their work separations and mixtures, tell me, Theotetus, do you understand what they mean by these expressions? When I was a younger man, I used to fancy that I understood quite well what was meant by the term not being, which is our present subject of dispute. So, you know, the whole point of all this, remember, is to get us to this point where some things, they're a communion of some kinds, but not of others, right? That's around 252, where he draws that conclusion. So we just want to keep that goal in mind, because it's going to lead to the solution of not being as kind of otherness, as opposed to this entity nothingness. So 243, he wants to interrogate the philosophers that say that, you know, ultimately these different principles are all one. Ye, who affirm that hot and cold are any two principles are the universe, what is this term which you apply to both of them? And what do you mean when you say that both and each of them are? How are we to understand the word are? Upon your view, are we to suppose that there's a third principle over and above the other two, three in all, and not two, hot, cold, and being? For clearly you cannot say that one of the two principles is being, and yet attribute being equally to both of them. For if you did, whichever of the two is identified with being will comprehend the other, and so they will be one and not two. At this point, remember, he's sort of voicing what they would say, right? He's sort of speaking in another voice, right? Right. He would answer that the two hot and cold will be resolved into one. This is a way of saying being is not simply reducible to those things, right? It's one thing to say that everything that is is either hot or cold or is in motion and rest. But if your theory is that being is reducible to those two things, then you have a huge problem on your hands. To say something is, you know, you'd have to be able to predicate rest of motion and vice versa. I'm trying to get at, you know, it's over a couple pages here that really his ultimate response to these people is, I just don't understand what you're saying when you say that these will be resolved into one. You know, he asks, please explain this matter to us. Let us no longer fancy that we understand you when we entirely misunderstand you. And what will the assertions of the oneness of the all? Must we not endeavor to ascertain from them what they mean by being? So ask them, is there something that you call being? And is being the same as one? And do you apply two names to the same thing? What will be their answer? So there's a section at 252 that sort of, I think you're right, Mark, that at some level he's taking them at face value and then having a pseudo discussion with them, a pseudo dialectic in which to show that what they're saying doesn't make any sense. Right. And here's just two lines down from that. I think the essence of that to admit of two names, right, hot and cold, and to affirm there is nothing but unity. Isn't that surely ridiculous? So there you go. Yeah. <laughs> You're saying that there are multiple principles, but yet it's all one. And that's ridiculous because there's multiple names involved. Yeah. Yeah. And he goes through that with motion and rest. And 252, I think I'm just, you know, he's recapitulating. Having, you know, gotten this far, he says, it seems all things have suddenly become upset at once. The claim of those who set the all in motion and of those who bring it to rest as one and all those who say that beings are sorted by forms that are forever in just the same condition. 
for all those people attach the verb to be, some saying that all things are in their very being in motion and others that all things in their very being are at rest. Exactly. And further, all those people who sometimes combine all things and sometimes divide them, and whether they divide and combine them into one and out of one, limitless elements or elements that keep to a limit, it's just the same whether they posit this as coming about by turns or continuously. They'd be saying nothing with all these claims if there's no intermixing at all. That last point is there has to be a way for these things to interweave with one another. In fact, that's the word that ends up getting used. There has to be a weaving together of these different things in order to be able to have things mixed up at all. You can't have pure beings. So the whole point of this is to get at the transition to the explanation of not being is where we get to the point where... What he's trying to reject with all these theories is the idea that everything communes with everything or. Yeah, this communes part was kind of confusing. So let's get into that. Why is this an issue? So the whole conclusion of this, shall we refuse to attribute being the motion and rest or anything to anything and assume that they do not mingle and are incapable of participating in one another? Or shall we gather all into one class of things communicable with one another? Or are some things communicable and others not? Which of these alternatives, Theotetus, will they prefer? So the whole point of all of this is to lead us to this third alternative. So there will be certain kinds of categories or kinds, like otherness, which relate everything to everything. I think we need to use the word communicative in here because that's what was confusing in the previous part that you read. So one idea might be that, you know, if you say all is one, That means every predicate that you come up with applies to everything in your ontology, ultimately, because ultimately they dissolve into one thing. So if you're Schopenhauer or a Buddhist or whatever, then you see all these individual people and objects and there's ideas, but ultimately these are just appearances. So every predicate that is legitimately applied to anything should apply to anything else, according to Plato's, you know, if you really have that view that everything is ultimately all one, then all predicates apply to everything. And clearly that's not true, because then everything that is in motion would be at rest. Everything that is in rest would be in motion. Everything that is cold would be hot, etc., etc. But it's also not as if everything is completely separate. They have to be able to commune with one another, right? Things intermix with one another. So what's the thing that he's arguing against with that? Is that like a hardcore atomism of the old-style Democritian variety or some other sort of irreducible pluralism, that there's a light force and a dark force or whatever, that just to try to explain how these things could coexist? Yeah, you could use motion and rest, since that's the example he used. Okay. So how do they commune with each other, motion and rest? I mean... One, something stops. The same thing is in motion and then it stops and it's at rest. There's one way of communing, but that's different than predicating motion of rest and rest of motion. That's Well, I mean, isn't it the example, you're sitting there and you aren't moving, but internally you you are moving or you're growing or you're wasting away, right? Hmm. You're in motion at the same time that you're in rest. Or if they had the principle of relativity, <laughs> even better. No, I think it's that, so motion and rest can't partake of each other. That's an example of categories that do not participate in one another. But there are other categories that will commune with each other. And it'll turn out, for instance, that being and non-being will be an example of those categories. You can assert them of the same entities because non-being will turn out to be otherness. So there'll be no contradiction in saying that those two things commune in this weird word commune. There are some kinds which can be attributed to the same thing, and there are some that can't. Well, there's a section 251 
how do we predicate many names of the same thing? What's written in the margin? It's amazing that that's an issue. But yet, that's one of the problem statements here, that if you were a Parmenidean, you might have trouble with that. You know, if everything is ultimately one, on what basis would you apply different names of it? You'd have to have some sort of explanation, which of course, like Buddhists do, they have like, there's ultimately reality and then apparent reality, and all these supposed differences are part of apparent reality. Plato doesn't get into specifically how a modern version of Parmenides' view, well, it's not even that modern. <laughs> Vedic, you know, all is one, is just as old as this dialogue, so I'm not sure why he's totally blind to that, but I guess that's not what the Parmenideans were actually arguing. I'm not sure we're doing justice to this. Well, so we've been struggling to articulate why this is a problem, right? Because in some ways, mm -hmm. on the surface of it, it doesn't seem like it should be a problem. It takes some work to understand why Zeno's paradox isn't just stupidity. Why would you actually be confused about that? And so the argument that the stranger is trying to argue against is presenting the paradox and the conundrum, which in some ways doesn't seem like such a conundrum at all. Like, at least to me, when I hear, well, things are mixtures of other things, it sounds like sort of obvious. Like, why would you have been so stumped about this? So the way the rest in motion paradox ends is that you can't say that being is just motion rest, because then you have to have the contradiction of attributing one of the other when you say motion is. If being is motion and rest as a concept and I say that there is such a thing as motion, and I'm saying motion is motion and rest. That's that contradiction. But then if I say that being is some third thing outside of motion and rest, then he says, well, how can you say that, you know, everything is at motion and everything is at rest? It's as if you're saying there's something that neither rests nor moves. Like, if you're thinking of reality as reducible in this sense, and you say, okay, so someone's trying to say reality, being just is nothing but motion and rest, and you've gotten past the first paradox where you say, okay, that doesn't work. And then you say, okay, I'll concede there's some third thing. Reality is being plus motion plus rest. Well, that implies that there are some things that neither rest nor move. So that solution doesn't work. So that's the way that whole paradox ends. Wouldn't that also imply that if everything is rest and motion and being, that some of them are also not being? Wouldn't you also have that implication as well? I don't know. The way you just said it, everything is rest and motion and being. No, why does that imply that some of it is not being? You just said everything is being. I mean, if I do it the ands and be all logical about it, then everything is also rest and everything is also motion. I mean, I think the whole point of this, it's pointless to try and say what being is, to try and reduce it to these elements because you have to use the is and the word to be even to talk about those elements. You're never going to get past that paradox. Is that different than the paradox we had before with the paradox of instantiating non-being? He's saying they're related. So okay. he's trying to say, look, yeah, this paradox of non-being in a sense applies to being as well. To talk about being is to talk about something totally indeterminate. If you try and give it any determinacy, you'd give yourself all these paradoxes. You have to leave it indeterminate. Is that the direction they go here, recognizing the indeterminacy of being? Well, they just leave it. So the way it leaves off is, then being is not the combination of rest and motion, but something different from them, Theotetus, so it would appear. Being then, according to its own nature, is neither in motion nor at rest. That is very much the truth. Where do we look for help? I don't think we can look anywhere. And then they move on. 
So he says, when we were asked to what we were to assign the appellation of not being, we were in the greatest difficulty. Do you remember? To be sure. And are we not now in as great a difficulty about being? I should say so. Then let us acknowledge the difficulty. And as being and not being are involved in the same perplexity, there's hope that when one appears more or less distinctly, the other will equally appear. This is sort of setting us up, right, for the weaving notion. Yeah. And if we are able to see neither, then there may still be a chance of steering our way in between them without any great discredit. And then they get into the predication problem, which we probably don't need to go over that again. Say what the predication problem refers to again. Just you can't say that something that's at rest is in motion and vice versa. Or So the idea is that when you say, so there's you know the sophistic or the clever people who run around trying to you know, mess people up with contradictions will say you can't give many things to the same. They're treating predication as if it were identity. So you can't gotcha. say X is white and X is good and X is tall and all that stuff. Only good is good. Only man is man. Right. So that's the interweaving thing that Dylan was talking about. You have to have the same object that can have multiple properties. Yeah, we have to have a sense of is, which is not identity, which is really kind of what all that rest and motion paradox stuff was, is about. You're saying if you identify being with rest and motion, that's where you get the problem. Yeah, uh, that's a good way to put it, Wes. That, that if you use that coupling verb, it's not an equation. It's not an equal sign. This also makes a little bit of sense of why you would get into a discussion about same versus like as a result of this, which isn't going to be exactly the same discussion, but it's in that universe. Yeah, so we're back to this idea that some classes are communicable with each other and some are not. So do we need to say more about what that means? Well, so it just seems like this whole thing, you know, why this is historically important is that maybe he is through this dialogue establishing something like the modern way that we approach ontology, that people before him were just, what is there? There's the four elements or everything is one or there's just mind. But they didn't have within that picture, like, well, what is this is part? Is is another element among the other things? Because especially if you are saying it's all one, then you're using the is in the equal sense. And so at the end of this, we're going to end up with well, substances, not exactly Aristotle's metaphysics, is we're, we're not going to get out of this, but we're going to end with, yes, okay, there are things that have properties, and there are properties, and of course the things that have properties, some of the properties they can both have at the same time, you can be both tall and fat, but you can't be both fat and thin because the different properties apply in different ways, and all of this has being, and the way that not being enters into it is as otherness, the fact that fat is other than thin. So there's some not being involved right there in just describing things. So it ends up being a discussion of grammar on the one hand, the difference between adjectives and nouns and be as a verb, and correspondingly the differences between the metaphysical categories that go with those, that correspond to each of those. Yeah, so it's around 253 that he gets to the... The vowels, consonants, and the letters, and the grammar example. So every one of them who desires to answer truly will adopt the third and remaining hypothesis of the communion of some with some. So I'm hoping this will clarify this. Quite true. This communion of some with some may be illustrated by the case of letters. For some letters do not fit each other, while others do, of course. And the vowels especially are sort of bond which pervades all the other letters, so that without a vowel, one consonant cannot be joined to another. True. 
But does everyone know what letters will unite with what? Or is art required in order to do so? Art is required. What art? The art of grammar. Moving on a little bit. And as classes are admitted by us in the like manner to be some of them capable and others incapable of intermixture, so some things like rest and motion are opposites, must not he who would rightly show what kinds will unite and what will not proceed by the help of science in the path of argument? And will he not ask if the connecting links are universal and so capable of intermixture with all things? And again, in divisions, whether there are not other universal classes which make them possible, and so there are these universal classes like otherness and likeness, sameness. And yeah. So everything is, but everything also partakes of not being in that it is other than something else. Right. Unless you're talking about being itself. Being itself is not other than. Right. And everything is the same with itself. So not everything is at rest. Not everything is at motion. There are some of these classes which won't apply to everything. But we do have this higher level what he calls the greater kinds, which apply to everything. And the way this helps solve the paradox of not being is that we can ultimately say that being and not being are not like rest and motion. They're not these contradictory classes. They are more like same and other. Everything can be the same to itself, but other than something else at the same time. Yeah, and they make that explicit link between non-being and other. Right. So to not be is not like an existential predicate. It's like there's a non-existential predicate. where So that's the paradox. You get the is and the not. But it's a relation. Not being is a relation between beings. So to say Theetetus is not flying is this negative relation between the particular Theetetus and then a class or a property. Or to say that the image that you have you know, that's connoted, that's represented by the sentence does not correspond to the thing in reality. It is other than, even though of course it would be other than, even if it did correspond, because a sentence is not the same as the thing. <laughs> but as he's described earlier, an imitation in this way, a sentence is kind of an imitation of the world, like a picture is an imitation of the world, but a false sentence would be even a worse imitation of the world. It would be an out of proportion, just like the sculpture could retain the proportions of the real thing, or it could be out of proportion. Well, the false sentence is like, it's not the case that Theotetus is flying. <laughs> Why is that false? <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> Theotetus is flying. We don't analyze that as saying, hey, this entity that exists doesn't exist. We don't fall into that paradox. We say that someone is asserting a relationship between Theotetus and flying and it's that relationship that doesn't exist. We don't have an entity, Theotetus flying, that doesn't end up existing. We have, well, I'm not sure if that's the right Why analysis. couldn't you just say it's other than the truth? Because I don't think otherness is about the relationship between propositions and, and the world. The otherness is the relationships between properties and objects or between properties and properties or classes and classes. The otherness is a metaphysical thing. And the reason why I mention that is like, there's not a lot about the mind here and the relationship between the mind and the world. If you really wanted to locate nothingness, you could talk about the mind. It is a no thing. And if you're a materialist, then the mind is a great example of a nothing. And that's, of course, the way Sartre and other existentialists will refer to the mind as nothingness to try and call out what subjectivity is. Now, if you want to locate appearances or images, 
in the cognitive sense, that's where you would locate that too. And you would say, well, yeah, there is a sense in which a representation, a mental representation is a nothing. But I don't see any of that here. No. But they do start talking about speech, and they come back to the way in which you would talk about truth and falsehood and being and non-being and sort of locate the origin of the false and how we should deal with that in speech. This is all around 260. Because speech is an interweaving of forms. Very confusing given that he's using the term form, and it's Plato, and it's not form. It's not that word. It's a different Greek word, right? Is it, or is it the it's same? just a, a day, right? Is that the word for form in capital F? Yeah, but I think you're right to say that it's probably confusing in that, yeah, it's the eidos. Yeah. But sometimes, you know, eidos just means eidos, and sometimes it means eidos. Sorry, what were you reading again? What was the... Line 260, they make this transition into talking about speech. We might be able to assert discourse to be a kind of being. If we could not, the worst consequences would follow. We should have no philosophy. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, this is... And Theodosius yeah. says, well, it's like very true, but I do not understand why at this moment we must determine the nature of discourse. Can we be done already? God damn it. You're right. So that's the beginning of this section where they talk about the nature of speech. Yeah. Are there any quotes you had picked out, Wes? Because I, to me, it just seemed like more of the same just spelling out the argument that we've already tried yeah. to hash through. Well, with the the whole not being is the principle of the other comes like around 256. We didn't really... Okay, let's read some quotes of that to make sure we got that. Yeah. Not being necessarily exists in the case of motion and of every class. For the nature of the other entertaining into them all makes each of them other than being and so non-existent. And therefore, of all of them in the like manner, we may truly say that they are not. And again, inasmuch as they partake of being, that they are and are existent. Every class, then, has a plurality of being and infinity of not being. And being itself may be said to be other than the other kinds. So, right, being, interestingly enough, is other than motion, other than rest, other than same, other than one. Certainly. Then we may infer that being is not, in respect of as many other things as there are, for not being these, it is itself one, and is not the other things, which are infinite in number, all these other classes. And then the big climax is, when we speak of not being, we speak, I suppose, not of something opposed to being, but only different. How inclusive. So at least we can see here why Hegel liked this part, that this is very much like the hashing through of the basics of being and not being in Hegel's logic. It's not exactly lifted from here. He's not saying that being and not being taken absolutely would be the same thing, but he is kind of looking at the next step that Hegel had. Being is always being something specific, which means being other than everything else. Determinateness requires otherness. Isn't the first step just noting that the not of something is in general not the contrary, not the exact opposite not of the, it? Uh, yeah. Exactly. Because that's the, the whole rest and motion thing. If you treat all these different classes as incommunicable, as mm -hmm. yeah, being radically separate or opposites, then you run into trouble. But yeah, so the, the not beautiful is not the opposite of beauty, but it's the other than beauty. Yeah. Um, and, and this, in some ways, makes sense why we had this whole division stuff at the beginning, right? Is that's exactly how this method of division is working, is you're separating things into this and not this. And they're not opposites at all. 
you've divided them. And then just as you were saying, you are also instantiating by dividing off the not this away, you instantiate the this. Give it determinacy. And give it, you yeah. give it determinacy. Yeah. yeah. That's all I meant by instantiate. In some ways, you're declaring it by the very act of cordoning off all the not being. And so that act of distinguishing is as much about saying what it's not. In fact, I, I don't know Hegel well enough to say, is the activity of cordoning off the being of something about sort of looking at the inside and finding out where the border of that being is? Or is it more about cordoning off all the things that aren't that being? Those would be two pretty different things. The first requires that you know what it is. The second just requires that you know what it's not. Yeah, I think it depends on sort of what stage in the Hegelian laying out of the ontology is. Okay. But, uh, you know, it is relevant here because he's reflecting on the same dialogue, basically, that we are in thinking about, you know, what are we supposed to take away from this? Are we supposed to, as I described it, just say, oh, yeah, he's just prefiguring Aristotle and and uh, talk about properties versus substances and make it all very simple like that? Or is he retaining more of the subtlety that I was saying he was ignoring about the, especially Heraclitus's take on Parmenides' view? Folks should go back and listen to our Heraclitus episode because that ended up just being a very, uh, I think Dylan captured it pretty well in talking about the ratio is the thing that stays steady among all the tension, but still it's kind of a mind bending view. Well, there is something that sounds pretty Heraclitian actually here. You know, he talks about the beautiful and the not beautiful and the just and the not just. And mm-hmm. the whole point of that is that those are equally entities. It's not like one is a non-entity and the other is an entity. That's what otherness gives us. And then he says, so this is around 258, then as would appear, the opposition of a part of the other and a part of being to one another is, if I may venture to say so, as truly essence as being itself. Oh, I thought he was saying it was the essence of being. Okay. And implies not the opposite of being, but only what is other than being. Okay. So that's more on the line of determination, right? To give the essence. Hmm. This is kind of where it started to get very redundant to me, and I stopped taking such good notes. Then it's not being as a kind of being. Does that get us back to where Dylan was? Because the very next step after this is moving on to the nature of speech and relationship between speech and opinion, and then we get some more language stuff about nouns and verbs, and then how speech is a weaving. Just to read a little bit more. So 259, let not anyone say then that while affirming the opposition of not being to being, we still assert the being of not being. For as to whether there is an opposite of being, no, to that inquiry we have long said goodbye. It may or may not be and may not be capable of definition. All right. Well, that's not helpful. No, it's that the big question. Is there an opposite of being? It's a bad question. That's his, that's his conclusion. We've moved on. We're at the next stage of the dialectic here. Once you introduce otherness, you don't have to ask the question in that way anymore. We are saying there is a communion of classes and that being and difference or other traverse all things and mutually interpenetrate so that the other partakes of being and by reason of this participation is and yet is not that of which it partakes, but other and being other than being. It is clearly a necessity that not being should be. (laughs) And again, being through partaking of the other becomes a class other than the remaining classes and being other than all of them, is not each one of them and is not all the rest, so that undoubtedly there are thousands upon thousands of cases in which being is not 
and all other things, whether regarded individually or collectively, in many respects are, and in many respects are not. I don't know. I just really like that speech. It's just as good as the one in the apology. (laughs) (laughs) It's so persuasive. Do you want to sum it up so it doesn't just sound like a tongue twister? Yeah, it's the the idea that we have being and otherness, and otherness is not the opposite of being. It's not in the same way that motion and rest were opposites, but being actually can partake of other, right? In the way that motion couldn't partake of rest, being is other to the class otherness, and it's to other classes as well, like sameness. and, And otherness partakes of being, so there is no paradox in that. So that's the sense in which not being is, right? Things are other to each other. All right. So being is not simply the property that everything has. As with Hegel, it has this multivalent appearance. It is other to the class of otherness, but yet it is something that each of the other things have. You know, so it is communicable in the language of this, both to individuals in that they have the property of being and is communicable via otherness, you know, with concepts. The concept of being is other than the concept of other. So that's interesting. There's not too many things that are applicable to both concepts. (laughs) Yeah. In fact, being partakes of other in order to be other to other. And otherness has to partake (laughs) of other. There you go. So it's this idea of some things being communicable and others not. That sounds like a new way of describing some kind of new drug. I'm going to partake of other in order to become other to other. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. I think that should be a sex position. That should be, that's. That would be a good drug, just other or perfume, the other. <laughs> Friends of mine in college were in a band called The Others. Nice. Was that self consciously from the sophist? No, I'm sure it was not. So we want to move back to where Dylan was. Okay. Oh. Language. Yeah, we might be able to wrap up with this, right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that, so just to, 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 again, mirroring the Phaedrus, which talked about love for the first half and then moved to talking about rhetoric. And then at the very end had a pretty damn important thing about language, about writing versus speaking that was very short. Well, here we kind of have the same thing in that we start talking about categorization and how we figure out the definition of something and specifically the sophist. And then we move to this talk about does not being actually exist. And uh, then we have a bit about language, but unlike last time, it's less of an afterthought. It's more like the culmination of everything before, that we're going to say what the sophist is. The sophist is somebody who can tell you false things. That's why we started talking about not being in the first place. And so, of course, we have to apply our talk about not being to talking about false sentences. So you have a quote for us? Yeah. He's talking right around 260C. This whole section, he's just introducing what we're going to come up with an understanding of what speech is. Yeah, we want to get back to the possibility of false opinion, and false exactly. speech will set us up for that. Yeah, And he refers back to the earlier discussion saying, certainly non-being came to light for us as some one kind that is and is among the others dispersed through all the things that are. Just show. Then the next thing we must look into is whether it mixes with both opinion and speech. Why is that? If it doesn't mix with these, then it's necessary that all things are true. But if it does mix, then both false opinion and speech come about. For to opine or to speak things that are not, this, I suppose, is the false, insofar as it comes about in both thought and speech. So, 
the origin of how we have false things is this kind of mixing because everything we say isn't true and everything we say isn't false. So I will say that your translation is more felicitous than the Jawad here. There is falsehood, which thus arises in the region of thought and in speech. Stanley Rosen called it one of the best translations of a platonic dialogue I have seen in any language. That's on the back jacket. Whoa. So we have this idea there can be this relation of otherness out there in the world. Falsity becomes relational, right? It becomes this thing between words, words which don't belong next to each other, like Theotetus flies. So in the the same way, at the metaphysical level, Theotetus is other to flying. On the level of language, Theotetus and flies don't belong next to each other. So when you say it's not the case that Theotetus flies, you're not asserting that there's the entity Theotetus flies, because if you're referring to it, it's an entity, does not exist, creating the paradox. You're saying that the entity Theotetus doesn't belong next to is other than the entity flies. So you get no paradox of not being there. So it has to be not just other than, right? Because even if the bird is flying, still the concept bird is other than the concept flying. That's an interesting wrinkle. (laughs) But I think other than in this case is going to be a way of saying doesn't participate in or you can't predicate of. So even though the theotetus, the particular, is other than the concept flies and other than every other concept in some higher level sense, I think what's being said here, other than is being used as a synonym for falsity. and Or if it's other than in the world, then it can't be predicated in language. Otherwise, we haven't solved our problem. So this just makes you really appreciate the development of concepts like predication <laughs> that you do not have. Just start using communicates with instead of all these things. Is communicable. See how that works for he's, you. He's bequeathing, he's inventing the concept of predication in these dialogues. Pretty cool. So that sets us up for the conclusion. Because thought uh, is silent speech and opinion is the silent assent to that or the denial of it. And then imagination is an expression of these things. So if speech can admit true and false, then so can thought and imagination. And so we can have things like false opinion and we can have these phantasms or appearances that are in some non-paradoxical sense false or deceptive or dissembling. Still at the end of 260, they've established that there's falsehood, which arises in the region of thought and speech. And where there is falsehood, surely there must be deceit. Theotetus says, yes. And if there's deceit, then all things must be full of idols and images and fancies. To be sure. Into that region, the sophist, as we said, made his escape. And when he had got there, denied the very possibility of falsehood. No one, he argued, either conceived or uttered falsehood inasmuch as not being denied in any way partake of being. True. And now, not being has been shown to partake of being. And therefore, he will not continue fighting in this direction, but he will probably say that some ideas partake of not being and some not, that language and opinion are of the non-partaking class, and he will fight to the death against the existence of the image-making in the fantastic art in which we have placed him, because, as he will say, opinion and language do not partake of not being. When he originally was talking about being ignorant, it's just being malformed. You're aiming at something, but you're not hitting. And so it seemed like a lie also was something there was malformed about it. But now he's saying that there's just because there's falsehood. So if you're ignorant, you believe something false and that necessarily involves deceit. Should I be troubled by that? Or is this a translation issue? 
The interesting question is whether it's proper to call the sophist deceitful. If he knows that he doesn't know, and then he's just deceiving, it's a much different position than thinking that he does know. Can we just cut through the bullshit and call the sophist Trump? Is Trump <laughs> actually deceitful, or is he just doesn't know that he's just saying inconsistent things and etc.? There's the question. It depends on the kind of sophist. Trump, right? Trump is not using heuristic. Trump is not using disputation. He's appealing completely to emotion. If he's a rhetorician, he's cut out any of the techniques that involve reason. Or yeah. But I thought I heard him in a speech to the White Decency Union, something about how can you say that there's falsity? There's no, uh, everything is one and there is no falsity. Something like that. Did he really say that? Or are you just having fun? <laughs> The fact that you don't, you don't actually know. Well, I know there's no, yeah, I know there wasn't a white decency in it, but yeah, for him to say something like that, yeah, that would not be, uh, that would not be beyond it. To relate Trump to this office, I think is not, doesn't work. Um, All right. You can dislike him in other categories. Some unlikable categories commune with Trump and some don't. <laughs> He doesn't even use the concept of predication <laughs> in his speeches. He just uses communion. All right. So how do we know that this is the best of all the definitions that were given of the sophist? He's the deceiver. He's the one who teaches you false things. So it's not the fact that he makes money off. It's not that he's a hunter. That's the main thing. It's not that he asks questions that purges you from beliefs. He's not a divider in that way, that it's the art of mimicry. He's a dissembler or ironical imitator. So we come back now after this digression, we're going to come back to that definition in terms of production of images, because what we've done is we've proved that the sophists can't escape into relativism, can't escape into the idea that there can be no such thing as falsehood. That's around 264, I guess. We could read the last two lines. I'll read The Stranger and you read Theotetus. He then, who traces the pedigree of his art as follows, who belonging to the conscious or dissembling section of the art of causing self-contradiction, is an imitator of appearance, and is separated from a class of fantastic, which is a branch of image-making, into that further division of creation, the juggling of words, a creation human and not divine. Anyone who affirms the real, sophist to be of this blood and lineage, will say the very truth. Undoubtedly, motherfucker. And then it ends. I mean, there is lots of interesting stuff and how he gets there, but we're probably not going to have time for that. <laughs> you didn't spend any time with this dialogue in your life, Wes, did you? Not as much as you, actually. And like, Even though I said I wrote <laughs> my senior... That's not true. No, no, no. no. Just, Can you you just speak us, a falsehood. Tell us, <laughs> tell us as part of the epilogue here, so you told us that is your senior thesis, is that right? Well, it was on the symposium, and I took a tiny, like I didn't really, when I was writing about things, I wasn't really writing about those things. I was writing about what was in my own head and using these things as launching pads. So it was really surprising me to, to me to reread this and to realize the extent to which my senior thesis had nothing to do with the sophist, although it did have a lot to do with the, <laughs> the symposium. I mean, what I did, what I was interested in was the talk about language and interweaving, but I was really fusing that together with the idea of the erotic and reproduction, a sense in which the mind is reproducing images, and the analogy of Aristophanes' lovers who are separated. They're called symbolon. They're compared to the way messages were validated, like two parts of a coin, you stick them together. 
and that those were called sumbalon. So the idea of two things coming together, that erotic analogy being the essence of what it meant to signify, to be a symbol. So this whole idea of language in the sophist of signification and predication are related where the interweaving is on the analogy to the lovers. And anyway, I know it's a mess, but that's it. Like I didn't really think about any of this, any of the paradoxes of non-being so, or any of the, are there so. any philosophers after this that really ran with language as interweaving and like made more of that analogy that we know about? I can sort of impose that on like the Hegel's dialectic, but I don't know what Hegel specifically said about language and whether he made, I kind of doubt that particular word pops up a lot, but I don't know. Think of Wittgenstein's Tractatus and the links in the chain, the attempt to model reality on facts, right? Where instead of objects, the reality is fundamentally relational, things like that. Right, because I was thinking of Wittgenstein and Tractatus as we were going through this, just in terms of language being a model of reality, and does it match reality? Is it distorted in some way? And that's not the way Wittgenstein talks. But yeah, once you get in this interweaving thing, certainly Plato is not running with that analogy to talk about how interweaving sets of sentences can equally well represent a larger state of affairs as completely different sets of sentences that sort of represent a different theory, which is just ultimately they could boil down to the same observable facts, but you could have a different conceptual scheme. There's nothing like that in here, but still you get the interleaving. You get a lot of problems if your ontology is objects, it's all thing based, right? And you just have things and then properties and then you have to invent because you need to ground somehow the truth of the stuff you need properties to be these real things you get platonic ideas and stuff like that so you get all kinds of problems so if you say the atoms for Wittgenstein if you say those are already fused subject predicate fusions and those are the unanalyzable basics you avoid all that so the weaving is built in so I think that's definitely related to this and I think Hugo Weaving played Wittgenstein in the... No, I don't know. What? <laughs> the actor, Mr. Anderson. Um, anyway, real people out there know who Hugo Weaving is. Maybe you don't. Really? <laughs> <laughs> he was Elrod in Lord of the Rings, too. Can't tell if you're just making all this up. It's true. They, they made movies of the Lord of the Rings? <laughs> <laughs> Yes, but they were distorted in image as compared to the book. Yes, they were. Next time, speaking of distorted in image, we're going to read Martha Nussbaum. I don't, this, this, it's not a segue. We're going to read Martha Nussbaum's Angry and Forgiveness, Resentment, Generosity, Justice. All those concepts are woven together in her book. And we're going to be talking to her. So we're not just going to be making stuff up. We're going to be getting the real deal, getting some up-close weaving. So come back for that. You could also, in the meantime, go to partiallyexaminedlife.com. Maybe go to our Facebook group. You could become a partially examined life citizen and start a group on the statesman because we're not going to do that anytime soon. But it happens just the day after Sophist. Aren't you in a lot of anticipation after a bunch of hours of listening to this for more? Exactly more of the method of division. So you should, yeah, definitely start a not school group. Related to something like this, remember the great discourses doing the stuff on the Play-Doh and uh, you've heard about? And Anyway, there's lots of stuff going on. Please get involved. We would love to have you down here. All right, thanks, guys. Good night, everybody. Good night. Good night. 
Too much will make you tense. 